The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. To say it very simply, if it looks like a kinetic activity and it has the effects of a kinetic activity, we will treat it as if it was a kinetic activity. So if you destroy something through cyberspace, meaning there is physical destruction, that will definitely be treated as if it's a an armed attack. And I think most nations would do likewise. The more vexing question is when something is destroyed or made inoperable, without that element of physical destruction. I'm Stephanie Pell, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, December 2nd, 2022. U.S. Cyber Command was established on May 21st, 2010, and is the second youngest unified combatant command after U.S. Space Command in the United States. As explained in the command history, U.S. Cyber Command operates globally in real time against determined and capable adversaries. Lawyers who work in the Office of the Staff Judge Advocate at Cyber Command provide legal advice on a range of issues, including the legality of offensive cyber operations. I sat down with Kurt Sanger, a recently retired Cyber Command lawyer, to discuss the kind of work he did and issues he addressed at U.S. Cyber Command. We talked about why the application of international law can be challenging in the cyber domain, some of the most vexing international legal issues with respect to offensive cyber operations, along with some legal issues he is observing in the context of the current armed conflict between Russia and Ukraine. It's the Lawfare Podcast, December 2nd. Kurt Sanger on Cyber Conflict and the Law. Kurt, you just retired from active duty less than a month ago. And for the past eight years prior to your retirement, you held various legal positions, including deputy staff judge advocate at U.S. Cyber Command. For those listeners who may not be familiar, how would you describe the mission of U.S. Cyber Command? So let me explain first where Cyber Command falls in with the Department of Defense and uh, how it relates to the other units at its level. So Cyber Command is one of 11 combatant commands. Six of the combatant commands are geographically aligned, such as CENTCOM, which has responsibilities in the Middle East, and UCOM, which covers Europe. And then there are five functional combatant commands, the best known one probably being Special Operations Command, which has global responsibilities. Transportation Command has responsibility for moving people and uh, doing logistics all over the world. 
And then there's Cyber Command, which is responsible for cyberspace operations globally as well. We have three presidentially assigned missions. The first is to defend our own networks, the Department of Defense Information Network. So defending the Doden is our number one assigned mission where most of our energy goes and most of our resources go. Not as many of the great legal issues that we have on offense, but certainly some important legal issues that we need to cover, a lot of which are similar to what they would be for any network owner or operator. Our second presidentially assigned mission is to support the other 10 combatant commands in the conduct of their missions. And then our third is to defend the nation in cyberspace. So there are defensive aspects of those second and third missions, but that's where our offensive operations are carried out. And you held a number of different legal positions at U.S. Cyber Command. Can you talk about them and the kinds of things you did and the issues that came across your desk? Of course. So I started out at Marine Corps Forces Cyber Command. So there was a service component for the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, and Coast Guard that sits under Cyber Command that supplies personnel and equipment to the Combatant Command, Cyber Command, as well as conduct some operational activities. So I started out with the Marine component for three years where I was their staff judge advocate. And because it was 2014 and still in the beginning years of Cyber Command, which started just a few years earlier, we were a lot focused on defensive issues at that point, uh, some of which were legacy issues of how the chief information officer was to integrate with this new entity, the Cyber Command and the Cyber Commanders. Some of those responsibilities are laid out in a statute, uh, started with a, one statute called Klinger Cohen, which uh, if you have any listeners out there are familiar with it, you have my condolences. And if you're not familiar with it, I recommend you avoid it. However, it is an important one and it sets up some of the responsibilities of chief information officers. And so to have commanders try to integrate their responsibilities with those statutory requirements took some some legal digging. We also had the beginnings of offensive operations that were motivated by the activities of ISIS in 2016. And what had largely been academic thinking for my first couple of years at Cyber Command on the offensive end, we finally got to see where the rubber met the road. And of course, there's no amount of thinking abstractly that prepares you for the moment when you're actually going to execute and plan for something that you know that's going to be done in cyberspace. But we got to the beginnings of that at Mar 4 Cyber, then moved up to Cyber Command, where I first was the attorney responsible for our plans, policy, and legislation section, such as uh, protecting the command's interests and offering up possibilities for the uh, National Defense Authorization Act that comes out annually, doing the partnership agreements with our international partners and also say Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Justice and FBI, setting up the responsibilities and mutual support arrangements between us. Then I moved over to our operations and intelligence law section, which is the bread and butter, of course, of where Cyber Command does its operations and its activities. And 
that ranged everything from long-term campaign planning to something that would come up middle of the night one night and president wants response options from our commander. And we are responding to that on a very short timetable. Both of those were very exciting jobs, as was the job at Marfor Cyber. At that point, I got what appeared to be a promotion to the deputy staff judge advocate at Cyber Command. Uh, I guess it is a promotion, but for me, it was just getting to watch and manage the people who were doing the very cool jobs that I used to get to do. And while I did enjoy it, I'd say particularly that ops and intel job was the equivalent of playing center field for the New York Yankees. I'm a New Yorker from going up, but that was the military judge advocate equivalent of the coolest operational job you could have because Cyber Command operates every day and it's dealing with operational law every day. So in terms of that operational law, I want to talk a bit about how the attorneys at Cyber Command evaluate the legality of proposed offensive cyber operations. What bodies of law or policies or guidance or regulations must Cyber Command attorneys consider? So we've got to look first at the authorizations that we have to conduct operations. And it's not a matter of international law. You can call it a product of domestic law, but it really is beyond the statutes and uh, you know what we would normally call legal research that, that we'd be looking into for something like that. It's whether or not our activity, our operation falls within something that the president and the secretary of defense have told us to do. So that's the initial consideration when we are given an activity to review. We do, of course, also look at the international law to ensure that our operations fall within law of armed conflict, uh, whether by virtue of an obligation of international law while we are in an armed conflict or by virtue of a Department of Defense regulation that states that all U.S. military operations are to be conducted in conformance with the law of war. We analyze those issues And then we also look at the domestic law authorizations, whether the president has constitutional authority to conduct the activity, whether Congress has supported us with the statute. Of course, in many situations, especially when we're conducting operations below the level of the use of force, what the president is uh, authorized to do by the Constitution might be encompassing of what Cyber Command is going to do. And we wouldn't necessarily need a statute. But of course, it's always better to have the authorization of the president and the authorization or endorsement or encouragement, and certainly the funding of the U.S. Congress as well. And then we get into the regulations that come from either the executive branch or the National Security Council or within the Department of Defense that aren't laws necessarily, but we need to adhere to the regulations, the processes and procedures to ensure that We've checked all the boxes before we execute our operations. There are often requirements that the president has uh, imposed on the Department of Defense or the secretary has imposed on his combatant commands or specific to cyber command. And it's very important that we meet the letter of the regulation on those because it demonstrates a level of assuredness that we are following everything we need to do. And it is meant to, uh, assure our mission partners and those across the interagency that are interested in what we do, 
that we are dotting the I's and crossing the T's so that we are, they know that we are doing that operationally and with our intelligence activities, not just with our legal analyses. So I want to turn specifically to issues involving international law and first ask you a broad question. Can it be challenging to apply international law to the cyber domain? And, and if so, why? It is for a number of reasons, the nature of the domain and also because it's, it is a novel domain. For most operations that the military conducts, there is a history that we can look to, and that history has been authored by millions of warriors over thousands of years. And it's also been weighed in upon by military attorneys, by the great authors and attorneys at Lawfare and many other blogs and publications. You've got a history to look back to between military doctrine and legal analysis that helps guide your answers for those uh, you know, land, air, sea, and space domains in most cases. For cyberspace, we don't have that, one, because those operations haven't been going on very long, and two, because they happen behind closed doors in most cases. And even when they come out into the public view, the details behind them, at least some of the important pieces, are not revealed to the public. You know, there's a uh, missile strike in Syria uh, during the Trump administration. That was something that Bobby Chesney could weigh in on on the blog within 24 hours, if not a couple days. Whereas a cyberspace operation almost never is going to be discovered that quickly. And it's going to be years before people with a level of expertise and interest, such as Bobby and the other folks at Lawfare, get a chance to weigh in on those operations. No, it's true. Um, we don't always see or rarely see cyber operations real time. And so it is challenging to provide that real time feedback. I want to, though, talk more specifically about particular issues or questions of international law that can be vexing with respect to offensive cyber operations. And let me ask you first, can you define what we mean by offensive cyber operations or, or what I should say, how, how DOD and U.S. Cyber Command defines offensive cyber operations? So our offensive operations will take place off the DOD networks, of course, usually actually for offensive operations, always in foreign cyberspace. And they require a certain level of activity. So espionage, those sorts of things are mostly in a different category. But for offensive operations, it requires what we call a D4M. That is deny, disrupt, degrade, potentially destroy, which we don't uh, normally do. But then the M is manipulate through cyberspace. So even the manipulation of code could be very minor would fall as a cyber effects operation. So it's really the effects that make an offensive operation offensive. So when we consider those operations, they fall under a certain legal regime or regulatory regime that the president has issued to the executive branch with additional guidance for the Department of Defense. That is what makes an offensive operation offensive. So as you noted, you always follow the LOAC both when the United States is actually involved in an international armed conflict, but, but also when you may be conducting offensive 
cyber operations uh, outside of an armed conflict. That may be a bit counterintuitive to some. Can you, can you talk about why you would uh, voluntarily apply LOAC outside of an armed conflict and how you analyze the situation? I actually asked this of an old mentor who passed away recently that will be well known to many of your listeners, Hayes Parks, uh, a great Marine and also an Army civilian employee, a legend in our field. I reached out to him to find out why, what, what motivated that decision to impose by regulation, what we might not have to adhere to outside an armed conflict. And it was really for simplicity, number one, to ensure that no matter what type of activity we were engaged in and what the conditions we engaged with it, that we were holding ourselves to the same standard, but also because we wanted to hold ourselves to the higher standard of the law of armed conflict, no matter what we were doing. Now, that manifests itself differently when we are in an armed conflict and we have a legal obligation versus when we are acting outside an armed conflict and uh, not obligated by law, but rather by regulation to follow the principles of the law of armed conflict. It's much more frequent now because of cyberspace and being able to act below the level of the use of force. I mean, it wasn't long ago that most military operations that were of any consequence uh, that involved another nation, they had to uh, involve the law of armed conflict because they involve kinetic effects. Cyberspace gives you additional options and more benign options. And so these questions come up more frequently. And when we analyze the law of armed conflict under the regulation rather than under a legal obligation, the analysis is different because the equities are not the same. We're not concerned about killing or injuring civilians or uh, military members of our of our adversaries. And we're not worried about property destruction in most cases. Of course, grave damage can be done through cyberspace, but most of the operations that our nation and our allies engage in don't involve that. So when we look at the regulatory requirement, we ensure that we are still protecting civilians. We ensure we're not interfering, and this goes well beyond what the law requires, we're not interfering with civilians' use of cyberspace uh, unnecessarily. Everything's got to have that military necessity element, which um, if it were down to the bare bones of what it is uh, we have to do, if that regulation did not exist, if we were not obligated to follow those principles in a non-armed conflict situation where the law of armed conflict does not apply, We'd still have a fiscal responsibility to Congress to only spend money and use resources while doing activities associated with an assigned mission, with a mission responsibility, because we can't spend money and use resources for things that are not essentially a business purpose or military purpose. So as you're well aware, the law of armed conflict prohibits the direct targeting of civilians for attack. You've mentioned both inside and outside of an armed conflict that Cyber Command considers the extent to which an offensive cyber operation would harm or, or prohibit civilian use of cyberspace. But of course, we've seen examples like of information operations where, where civilians are 
directly targeted. Can you talk a little bit more about that or, or more broadly how you think about the use of cyber operations with respect to targeting or at least affecting civilians when we're not talking about an actual attack? Right. So a cyberspace operation that might involve what appears to be civilian infrastructure, it would only happen if there was a military purpose for that activity. It was going to advance some mission that had been assigned to to the Department of Defense. I hesitate to use the term dual use because it really is, it's either targetable or not targetable. It's either a military target or it's not a military target. Because cyberspace involves so much civilian-owned infrastructure, what might appear to be a purely civilian object could raise advantages for our military adversaries. And those are the circumstances under which it might be targeted. Uh, but never is civilian infrastructure targeted without that military necessity component. So I want to turn to, I think, a, another interesting issue in international law, and that is when an offensive cyber operation could rise to and be considered an armed attack, which, of course, under Article 51 would give the victim state or country the right of self-defense. Is is international law clear on when an offensive cyber operation could cross that armed attack threshold? It's unclear because not every nation has gone on the record, perhaps, or not gone on the record as fully as we might have wished. But for the United States, ever since the first public comments on the issue were made by uh, a member of a U.S. Admi- uh, presidential administration. In this case, it was Harold Coe, I believe in 2011 at the U.S. Cyber Command Legal Conference, who was the legal advisor to the State Department at the time, who for many years, that speech was the most robust U.S. official statement on the United States' position on the law of armed conflict and its application to cyberspace operations. To say it very simply, if it looks like a kinetic activity and it has the effects of a kinetic activity, we will treat it as if it was a kinetic activity. So if you destroy something through cyberspace, meaning there is physical destruction, that will definitely be treated as if it's a an armed attack. And I think most nations would do likewise. The more vexing question is when something is destroyed or made inoperable, without that element of physical destruction. And so one scenario we often talk about is whether the, uh, say the systems of an economy are diminished or uh, disrupted or destroyed, disabled in such a way that they're unusable or they're unusable for a certain amount of time where it will have multiple levels of effect on an economy and on a society. That's a more difficult question. And I don't think that there's consensus on it right now, although I certainly think as a political matter, if the effects are grave enough and extend throughout society significantly, that most nations are going to think about the potential for the use of force in response to something like that. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, It's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. 
Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back, and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. 
And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. And of course, an example that sort of often gets battered around in this debate would be if, you know, a country were to execute an offensive cyber operation that took down the stock market of, a, of another country. I, I gather what you're saying is you wouldn't be surprised if the victim country in that situation viewed that as an armed attack potentially. This is the kind of thing that we never had to confront as an office, luckily, but it's something that we would war game just in discussion, whether it was uh, in an academic setting or even just talking around the office. How would we treat something like this? And I would think that if our stock market, the U.S. stock market, was disabled and there were multiple levels of effect enduring throughout society, that we would consider the United States, uh, the administration would consider using force in response. And that force wouldn't necessarily have to come through cyberspace. Uh, as Harold Cohen said in that speech 10 plus years ago, we reserve the right to respond to something like that uh, in cyberspace or out, regardless of its origin in cyberspace. And I think there are legal arguments that can justify that position, whether it's the similarity between the ultimate effect of the stock market being diminished. I mean, certainly if the markets are turned off, you can probably see a causal connection between that and deaths throughout society. We talk about it in terms of the, there's another one I'll throw out for your first year law students that might be listening. The Paul's graph tort case that all, everyone who's been to law school probably knows uh, it's a question of proximate cause. If a cyber operation was the proximate cause of deaths, I certainly think that you can anticipate certain lethal results coming from the uh, disabling of a, a market like our stock market. Uh, we might consider those results as the legal justification that what you have done violates the law of armed conflict and you have essentially committed an attack that violates the UN Charter. And that's up for debate. Uh, it, it's not a settled matter, and I can certainly see the arguments on the other side. However, I think that most nations would at least consider using force in response to an operation like that. It's an interesting argument, and I think interesting to compare to, for example, the kinds of effects you might get from economic sanctions, which have never been unlawful under international law and unless some 
you know, major humanitarian crisis ensued. I'm, in your view, is, is there a principled way to sort of distinguish offensive cyber operations that cause, you know, significant economic effects on an economy in a country with the kinds of significant economic effects that flow from sanctions? Sanctions have an element of process and public review. In, uh, it may not be the case in, in all nations, but certainly for the United States and our allies, there would be a level of process and review and debate before we would impose sanctions on another nation that might have the same end result as a cyberspace operation to disable somebody, someone else's, uh, another nation's economy. I think that alone is a very important point that the political process is an essential piece of what makes sanctions different from what's essentially, uh, it doesn't have to be a military operation. Sure. Any number of nations, uh, intelligence agencies have greater cyberspace operations capability than their militaries, but say it, it is essentially a military operation of sorts that would make it different. I think from a legal response standpoint. But that's a great question and definitely worth uh, thinking about, especially if you are a listener to this podcast and want to publish something or have a paper due in your law school class. Excellent. Um, yeah, I don't, I, I don't, I'm sorry to assign homework to anyone. Nobody's obligated. <laughs> it, it'll be a new thing we work into podcasts, the, the assignment of homework section. Sure. So I want to now turn to, I, I think, what's another interesting debate in international law in the cyber domain, and that is the question of whether the, the notion of sovereignty is a principle versus a rule, a primary rule of international law, which would then impose legal obligations upon states. One of your former colleagues, Gary Korn, has been for some years now engaging both um, at conferences and in writing on a debate about this topic with uh, Professor Michael Schmidt. Can you sort of summarize for us, first of all, like what is what's at the, the crux of this debate? So I, I should mention first that uh, Gary Korn is my former boss and Mike Schmidt, one of my longtime mentors. And so I hate to uh, disagree with either of them. And I don't think I'm going to have to while I discuss this, but uh, if I do, I apologize to both or at least one of them. So sovereignty as a rule would say that there are certain aspects of sovereignty that you cannot violate on their own without further identification with a more specific rule that might fall under sovereignty, such as uh, non-intervention or territorial incursion. Those who call sovereignty a principle say, yes, it is a description of a body of rules that uh, prohibit certain activities, but you need to tie to one of those more specific activities, more specific rules in order to say that something is prohibited as an activity. Specific to cyberspace and specific to my position at Cyber Command. Think of it from in the boots I used to wear and those were in the Cybercom Staff Judge Advocate Office now. They've got to go to a commander and say uh, what is legal and not legal under international law. And those who say sovereignty is a rule 
that must be followed and prohibit certain activities, we might propose that to one of our commanders. The commander is going to ask us to be specific, and we're going to have to provide specificity. So we're either going to have to link back to one of those more specific sovereignty rules anyway, or we're going to have to identify activities that are prohibited by sovereignty as a rule. I've asked that question of some of the people who advocate the sovereignty as a rule position, and I've never heard the specificity that, you know, what activities are prohibited just because sovereignty is a rule. We know that espionage isn't one of them because espionage, while not explicitly legal, is practiced by most nations and it is not uh, prosecuted as or, or even anyone is even accused of violating international law by conducting international espionage. So we know that there are some things you can do in another nation that goes on inside their borders and is not a violation of sovereignty. When you commit an attack in another nation, you know that you have violated sovereignty or you are in an armed conflict or potentially both. It's those activities in between, particularly those that fall below the level of the use of force that involve some level of that D4M, the denial or manipulation of information or the use of certain network assets. I've never heard the specificity. And without that specificity, I would link back to domestic law and say, this rule of sovereignty sounds like it is void for vagueness. And it's not something that a judge would would hold the command to. This is another one. I'm going to assign more homework, unfortunately. But this would be a great paper topic. Because if we can identify those things under which sovereignty as a rule, the actual operational activities that sovereignty as a rule prohibits, that would go a long way in helping us resolve this debate. Because ultimately, I think in our office, we saw the danger of sovereignty as a principle versus sovereignty as a rule, what it would mean for America. Because you know, what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. And if we're saying we expect Russia, China, the uh, United Kingdom, France, all these nations, allies, and adversaries to live by this standard, then we need to live by that standard as well. And we need to expect others, our adversaries, to take advantage of it in operations against us. So resolving this issue would be important and not only a great paper topic, but perhaps a great contribution to the legal analysis in this field. So let's talk a little bit about domestic law now. At the start of this conversation, you talked specifically about a number of regulations that guide the the cyber command lawyer's analysis of when offensive cyber operations are legally permitted. What are some of the most challenging aspects of that analysis from a domestic perspective? From the domestic standpoint, the first thing, of course, I mentioned earlier is whether we have a mission authorization. So whether a target we are considering for execution against, whether it falls within a mission authorization that ultimately can resolve back to the president. So our targets flow down and they flow up. They flow down because we are told to look at certain adversaries and consider the operations that we might conduct against them. And there are days where our commander will get a call from the president or from the National Security Council and says, we need you to present options on this. 
And this will be another nation. And we will have to look at targets that are associated with that nation and propose options on how we might execute cyberspace operations against them. If we have an authorization already, then it makes it much easier to get through that part of the analysis. And then we go to the more, you know, some of the other domestic law issues. But if we don't have an authorization yet, or it's not clear if we have an authorization yet, we have to do the analysis to say, all right, uh, what authorization do we need to go out and get? Or is this authorization that we already have? Maybe we didn't consider it for this type of target before, but does it actually fit? So it's not really a matter of uh, domestic statute or even constitutional law. I mean, there's a constitutional aspect to it. But the question is, do we have an authorization already? Because myth, mission authorization is sometimes the most important authorization you need to get. There, there's an acronym that we use in our office, which is CRAMP, that discusses all the things that one needs, that a unit needs in order to operate. The C and the R go together and the AMP go together. The C and the R are the capabilities and resources, so namely the service members, the civilians, the DOD and their contractors, as well as the money and the platforms and tools to conduct operations. Then the AMP go together, the authority, the mission, and then permission is what they stand for. Authority is what we describe as the constitutional authority uh, and or statutory authority. Unless, even if we have a statute, unless the president or the secretary has directed us to do something, that statute is not a mission. We need to be told by our chain of command to do something. There are other administrative things that Congress can tell us to do. But as far as the operational is concerned, that's an Article II responsibility. So A is that big authority. M is the mission assignment that we just talked about. And then the P is that last piece where you have checked all the boxes of the processes that we talked about earlier, gotten all the signatures, talked to all the offices and all the other interagency partners and sometimes international partners that we need to discuss with. And we present that back to our higher authority and say, we've done our due diligence. And then we get that P, the final permission to execute. And that's how we handle the, the domestic law issues. So during that analysis, we look at whether there are any statutes that might impact our uh, operations. Congress has been very supportive of Cyber Command's missions. There are specific authorities in statute that identify our most capable adversaries, China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, the crink, as I refer to them, that they are specifically called out in statute and as I said earlier, it's it's great to have presidential authorization, but it's always better, as Justice Jackson would support, uh, it's always better to have the support of the president and Congress before you conduct your executive branch activity. So I would be remiss if I didn't talk with you about the kinds of cyber operations that we are seeing um, in the Russia-Ukraine armed conflict. And with the understanding that there is likely a lot going on that we aren't seeing publicly. Are there interesting legal issues, especially with respect to the application of LOAC to the cyber operations that we're seeing that have come to your attention? The most interesting one has legal and extra legal components. I think the extra legal ones are more compelling, but they're, they're enmeshed, so they're worth discussing together. The United States and 
most NATO nations and others are supporting Ukraine in its defense of its nation. And one of the ways that we are supporting them is our commander, General Nakasone. This is my former commander now. He uh, stated publicly that we are conducting the full spectrum of operations in support of Ukraine. The concern with regard to any type of support, cyber operations or otherwise, to include the provision of weaponry, as NATO allies in the United States in particular has been doing, is whether that crosses a line that makes us a co-belligerent or violates our neutrality. Nations, not belligerents in an armed conflict, are required to remain neutral. Neutrality has some features that are complex and permit the provision of weaponry under most circumstances to a belligerent. But we have not crossed that line, certainly with the weapons we provided. That's known publicly. And uh, the United States once accused Russia of doing something similar in Afghanistan while the United States was operating there. But that didn't make Russia a co-belligerent. didn't violate their neutrality, most likely either. At least I never saw anything about it. But with cyberspace operations is a much more difficult uh, assessment because it's so new and we don't know what type of operation might lead Russia, who is not necessarily a genuine analyzer of international law that more likely is going to make their legal analyses uh, based on their strategic needs. It's what type of cyber operation might cause them to say, hey, Nation X supporting Ukraine, you've done something that rises to a level that we now consider you a co-belligerent. And so we're all concerned, uh, not only as a matter of international law, but also as a matter of perception and the strategic interests of of Russia, what that line might be. I think most nations would be well served to be concerned about that line for all their cyberspace operations, because the course is uncharted as it is for something like the provision of weapons. The other interesting issue that arises is that there are many many more civilians and civilian entities that can be involved in this conflict in a new way because of cyberspace and other technology than in previous conflicts. Uh, For example, Elon Musk's company providing satellites in support of Ukraine. Uh, I know there's been a lot of writing about that and whether those satellites are targetable and under what circumstances they might be targetable. And then also there are civilian hackers that have come to Ukraine's aid. Uh, Ukrainian officials had even called out for support from the volunteer hacker army to go after certain specific targets, which some hackers did to some effect. One thing you have to worry about if you are participating is that is whether or not you become a direct participant in hostilities. If you are providing a certain level of support to a belligerent, you may become targetable yourself. Again, these are uncharted waters for cyberspace operations and for civilian participation in them, but anyone who's participating in it should be well aware that they could violate the law of armed conflict through their hacking, and they also should know that they certainly would be violating the domestic law of the United States by conducting hacking activities, even if those activities are aligned to United States policy. Uh, You never know when one of your hacking activities is going to 
be on the same system that an intelligence agency is collecting information on, or Cyber Command might be conducting operations on, or you know you just want to keep the lines open uh, for some diplomatic reason. You may be interfering with U.S. policy uh, rather than supporting it. So these are important considerations, and uh, you know any type of hacking under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act is prosecutable, even if you think it might be helping the United States support to, to Ukraine. And, you know, there are many more interesting issues that have come out of this conflict, some which the United States are, are not involved in, but are just raised between the, the two parties. But uh, those are the most interesting ones. Anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, actually, let me make one advertisement. Cyber Command is now seeking out, they're seeking out interns for the Cybercom Staff Judge Advocate Office. So if you are going to be in your third year of law school next year, they are taking applications for, for those in that position. So the advertisement can be found on the Cyber Command website. It might be locatable elsewhere soon. So if you are interested in that, uh, feel free to find me on LinkedIn and I will point you the way or go find it on the Cyber Command website. The other thing I'd say is that this is a very exciting legal practice. There's not a lot of things in law that are brand new. I'm sure there are plenty of tort lawyers and contract lawyers and property lawyers who are finding new things in their fields, but their fields are also governed by hundreds, if not thousands of years of human experience and legal practice. We don't have that in cyberspace. And so even after uh, 11 or 12 years, we're still on the ground floor for much of that legal practice. And though I had eight years working in this space, uh, six months from now, most of what I know will be obsolete. And somebody who's working over the next six, six months will probably know more than me. So you can still get on the game and you are not behind the power curve if you do it now. Well, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for joining me. No, this is an honor, Stephanie. Thanks to Lawfare. It's been great being here and I really appreciate you having me on. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Jay Venables of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.